Okay, so as we said, we are looking at the world after the resurrection. How is the world different because Jesus was raised from the dead? And last week, we talked about the coming of the Spirit, that the Spirit that used to just be available at certain times in certain situations for certain people is now available to everyone. God's power and personal presence is available to everyone in the person of the Spirit. Now, today, we are going to be talking about God's kingdom, God's kingdom come. And the, the question that we're going to be answering is this, in light of all that is still wrong in the world, is Jesus really still the right answer? Now, again, for most of us, if you are watching or here this morning, you probably have uh, a sense that, yeah, J Jesus is definitely still the right answer. But let's just think about for a second for people who are not yet across the line of faith, because you probably interact with those kind of people on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis. And their question very, I think, legitimately is, if Jesus is the answer, then why is there so much that's still wrong in the world? In fact, you know, whether you follow Jesus or not, you can probably relate to this. A lot of people who say that they follow Jesus can be some of the nastiest, most unpleasant, most difficult to get along with people in the world. And so what's going on there? And church is supposed to be, as we'll talk about in just a second, an, a little enclave, a little, a little uh, outpost of the kingdom of God, a little bit of heaven brought back into the here and now. And let me just ask you, has that been your universal experience at church? Not necessarily, right? Right? So, so yeah, we, we, we who are believers are going to default to, oh, of course, Jesus is the answer. Of course, that's uh, in spite of everything that's wrong in the world, Jesus really is the answer. But even our own experience could make us wonder sometimes, let alone somebody who's not convinced of who Jesus is and what's going on in the world. So, uh, so we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at that honestly, and I, I think this is what's going to happen. If you are one of those who are skeptical, if you are someone who has not yet crossed the line of faith, you don't have any allegiance to Jesus, I think that as we talk about the way the kingdom of God works, the way king, the kingdom of God is laid out in Jesus' own teaching and in the scriptures, will help you to kind of make sense of why somebody like I or somebody who is a person of faith can say yes, yeah, definitely to this question in spite of and, in, and even in light of all that is going wrong in the world. And if you are already a person of faith, then I hope that this will give you a little bit more understanding, a little bit more compassion for people who have not yet crossed the line of faith and also maybe solve some of those questions that you have from time to time about God's goodness and his rule. Because basically, that's what it boils down to. That's the question, right? If God is omnipotent, if he is all-powerful, and if he is perfectly good, then how do we make sense of the wrong and evil and brokenness in our world? So, 
Welcome to Cornerstone. For those of you that are watching just the message or listening online later, we are so glad that you are here. So glad that everyone is here. I hope that you will check in. You can download our app. You can go to cornerstonenh.org slash here and check in to let us know. If you're watching online, please do that as well. So today's topic is the kingdom of God or God's kingdom. And this is the key This is the bottom line. This is the thing that Jesus' resurrection revealed to us, which people did not know or understand before, but makes sense of everything since the resurrection. Here's what it is. God's kingdom is both already and not yet. The nature of of God's kingdom that Jesus established is both already and not yet. Three points about this that we'll explore in just a second. We'll come back to them. Don't try to write them down right now, but just so that you got an overview of where we are going. God's kingdom starts small and grows. God's kingdom starts small and grows. Jesus' kingdom is, as he said, not of this world. And thirdly, God's kingdom comes to us wherever Jesus is acknowledged as king. God's kingdom comes wherever Jesus is acknowledged as king. Therefore, the next step, if you fit it into our next steps, it's under the category of say yes. What do we want to do? We want to embrace kingdom of God values in your life. If you want to experience the kingdom of God, in your life, then you have to embrace those kingdom of God values in your life. Now, usually what I do is I go through a particular passage, I focus on one particular passage, and then kind of unpack that as we go through the message. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to read to you a passage of prophecy from the Old Testament that talks about the kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom, and then we'll see in Jesus' teaching and in the New Testament how their view of the kingdom was informed by and, and corrected and, and filled by what happened with Jesus and his resurrection. So, uh, so let's look at it together. And what this will do is we'll show you a picture of how previous to Jesus, they would have understood the kingdom of God and then how after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then we'll see a truer picture of how it all comes together. So since I'm going to be doing it differently, I'm going to give you a couple of notes along the way as we look at this passage. So uh, it's a prophetic dream that the prophet Daniel is going to interpret, and I'll set the stage for you. So this is Daniel and three of his friends that we know best as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they are exiled. Their country has been captured and conquered, and they were brought into out of their country, transplanted from their country into Babylon. They were trained in the ways of Babylon. They are in the court of the king, basically, as his wise men or his, uh, yeah, that's probably the best thing, kind of uh, uh, they would include in astrologers and people that interpreted signs and dreams. And he had, the king would have a whole cadre of people like this. And Daniel and his three friends were a part of it. So the king 
Nebuchadnezzar, you may have heard of him before, has a dream. You know all this stuff. Uh, and he has this dream and he wants it interpreted. And so he goes to the wise men of his, uh, of his country and he says, tell me the interpretation of the dream. They say, no problem. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm on to you. You tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can give an accurate interpretation. And the wise men, of course, say, uh, you're asking something that no king has ever asked before. How can you expect us to interpret the dream when we don't even know what it is? And so he says, you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. I see right through you. You tell me the dream and then the interpretation, and I'll know that you got it right because you know the dream. But if you can't do that, I'm just going to kill y'all. <laughs> I'm just going to slaughter all of you. And that's the situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in. And we pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. Then the king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means. Verse 27, Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a, from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has 
fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statues, statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much because we are the, in, the inheritors of a kingdom that will never end. So, Lord, we thank you for that, a kingdom that is built on the rock, not cut from human hands, that becomes the mountain that fills the whole earth. Lord, I pray that as we look at today's scriptures, that you will grant hope, that you will give us the biblical kind of hope, a hope that is certain and rooted in your unchanging word, and that we will see how to apply this to our lives day in and day out so that the rule of Christ may be preeminent in our lives and may spread and work itself through our world as well. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of the, the history that we saw. Now, Daniel, of course, was in the kingdom of Babylon. He identifies the head of gold as the, king, as the kingdom of Babylon. Now, this was the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This is my cheat sheet on all of these kingdoms. Uh, some names you might familiar, the king Nebuchadnezzar, you might be familiar with, the king Nebuchadnezzar. We mentioned Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was also the time of Ezekiel in the, in the prophets. Then you had the next kingdom. The kingdom that followed the Babylonian kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. Some names of their rulers you might be familiar with, Cyrus, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, some of the prophets and biblical characters would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Hadassah, who we know better as Esther. Then there was the Bronze Kingdom. That was the Macedonian or Greek Empire. Names so you might be familiar with, Alexander the Great. This was also the time of the close of the Old Testament. The, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament closed around this time. This is why the New Testament is written in Greek, because of the success of the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great. 
And then you have the kingdom of iron, the empire of iron, and then mixed with iron and clay. That represents the Roman Empire, which of course was the ruling world empire at the time of Jesus. Then you have a rock, not cut with human hands. Do you know why we call our church Cornerstone? Because Jesus is the cornerstone, and it's our, in, it's our intent to build our lives upon and around God's cornerstone, Jesus. It starts as a rock, but grows into a mountain that completely displaces and replaces all of those other kingdoms. That is the kingdom of God. So... How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this kingdom? And here is the insight again that they did not have that we have looking back post-resurrection. The kingdom of God is both already and not yet. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you will because this will be very valuable to you. You have your growth guide at the bottom of the first page. There's the start of a diagram. Now, some of you may have seen this diagram before because I've used it before. But unless you are redrawing this diagram on a napkin across the table from someone and sharing it with somebody else, you are not yet to the point where you don't have to listen. If you're doing that already, you can tune out for the next couple of minutes if you've presented it to others. But this is something that I'm indebted to one of my professors at uh, college for, Dr. Carrie Newman, and uh, this was in New Testament theology, and this provided a framework for understanding the gospel, and in particular, the kingdom of God, that made everything clear and has helped to clarify everything for me from that point forward. So I share it with you in hopes that you will have that same experience. It was helpful to me because I'm a visual learner. Some of you will be visual learner. If you are a kinetic learner, then writing it out and drawing it will help you. If you're an auditory auditory learner, you will be hearing me explain it. So you're going to get this today and It is an amazing way of understanding. And now, from this point on, once you see this and read and understand this, when you read the scriptures, it will all just kind of fit into place. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I get that now. That's how that all works. That's how that all fits together. So we start out with creation. And this is the part of the drawing that is in your growth guide. Now, make space because there's going to be a little bit to go and you're going to have to work with work hard. So creation happens. God establishes creation and he is ruling and reigning. Everything is just as he intended it to be. He says, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. That is how it works. This is God ruling over his creation. And then the timeline begins. Now, unfortunately, that timeline doesn't last very long before the humans who are created get broken, right? They decide, I'm not going to live under God's rule and reign. 
I want to rule and reign. I want to decide what is right and wrong. I want to decide what is best for me. And so we have what theologians call the fall. There's creation and then there's the fall. And you see from that point on, we enter into a downward spiral. And that's what you see in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. It starts out with rebellion against God. Then that turns into murder. And then that turns into to a world that is totally broken and gone wrong, and it's spiraling down. So the question becomes, what is going to happen next? And then we see, just as God intervened incredibly and at creation, that from time to time, we see continued reaching down and out of heaven and intervening in the world. We see it beginning in chapter 12 with the establishment of the nation of Israel. We see it in the Exodus when God rescues his people. We see it in the the return from exile. After Daniel's day, there was a time where people were returned to and the kingdom was reestablished. But unfortunately, despite God's saving acts, his redeeming acts throughout history, we also see another repeated pattern, which is that over and over and over again, people continue to choose against God's rule and reign. And so he promises, and then as we enter into the prophetic books, especially of the Old Testament, God begins to promise and reveal to his people that his plan is that someday he's going to act decisively once and for all to reestablish his kingdom. And he's going to do something somehow that fixes this brokenness in us so that the whole world is redeemed and those who are in rebellion to God are judged those who submit to his rule and reign become a part of his re-established kingdom and that that kingdom, that timeline will go on forever. This right here is the complete picture of how if you lived before Jesus and you were reading the scriptures, you would understand the timeline of history. But what happened with Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene and they've been expecting a king, a Messiah, an anointed one who is going to reestablish the kingdom. And so they see Jesus and they think maybe he's the guy and maybe this new phase of history is just about to begin. But what they didn't understand until after the resurrection was that this was not the complete picture, but it was actually a little bit different. That the coming of the kingdom of God was going to happen in in two determinative phases. That God was going to send his son, his anointed, his Messiah, but that he would not rule and reign in a earthly kingdom kind of way, But in fact, he was going to offer himself as the sacrifice for sins and in the process, forgive the sins of the past and establish a new kind of creation, a new people 
who are indwelt by, ruled by God's Holy Spirit. And that this kingdom will start here. And then when Jesus returns as king and judge, then that will be 100% his kingdom from that point on. The ages, they thought one came to an end and the next one began. But what really happened is there is a overlap of the ages. And that overlap that where Jesus is resurrected, ruling in heaven, but we've still got the kingdom of this world keeping on going, that is the phase that we live in right now. So the kingdom of God is already here in the person of Jesus and in the kingdom that he established, but it's not yet come in its fullness. That is the space that we live in. This is also not only just a picture of the whole world and the timeline of the world, this is also the story of every one of us who are followers of Jesus because we have not gotten rid of our old nature completely. We still live in broken bodies of flesh, but there will, but there has been, when you say yes to Jesus, God's Holy Spirit indwells you. New life, eternal life has started. The new timeline has begun. What has happened? God, in the big scheme of things, is pulling heaven into the here and now. That's what the church is supposed to be. And for us individually, he is giving us his Holy Spirit and giving us his rule and reign in our hearts and minds beginning now. And that will continue. That's why in our world, we see both the kingdom of God and we see the kingdom of this world. That's why as a follower of Jesus, you experience this struggle between your flesh and the spirit but it's not an equal struggle. The new life is gaining strength and growing day by day. The old life is losing strength and passing away until that point where Jesus returns or you step into eternity and you are completely the new you. Now, like I said, Having drawn that picture, having understand that, now you'll be able to see when you're reading the scriptures this all the time. Here's a couple of examples. This is the Apostle Paul explaining the gospel in Romans chapter 8. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Remember all those little red X's? It's like over and over again, God would intervene, but the brokenness within us would keep, his, uh, keep us from fully participating in his plan. So God did what the law could not do. He changed us from the inside. He said, goes on. He sent a son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for his sins. Then same author, the Apostle Paul, writing to a different church, this one in Corinth, therefore we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart, Paul? Though outwardly we are wasting away, our flesh is weak and dying, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? Because as a believer in Christ, you are a part of the kingdom of God, and God's kingdom is both already 
and not yet. So a couple of quick observations and applications related to this. First, I said God's kingdom starts small and grows. Again, the expectation prior to Jesus, prior to his resurrection, was that there was going to be a cataclysmic close to the old age and an immediate blossoming of the new age. So Jesus, in his teaching, when he was teaching about the kingdom of God, would prepare people for this, even though they really didn't understand it until after the resurrection. But let's look at Matthew chapter 13. If you have time later, go back and read the whole chapter. It's all about explaining the kingdom of God. But look at this part in particular, verses 31 to 33. He gives two parables, two metaphors that explain this, that it starts small, but it grows. Here's another illustration. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. A mustard seed is a tiny little seed. It had the reputation for being one of the smallest seeds. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. So this tiny little seed that a bird could probably eat becomes big enough that it can build its home in it. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Do you remember in Daniel's prophecy, the rock is cut from a mountain, and then what happens? It grows to become a mountain of its own that takes over and covers the whole world. Jesus is saying the same thing. It's just giving them insight that they didn't have before. So what does that mean? That means that we should expect that we're going, because we're in that overlap of the ages, we're going to be experiencing aspects of both of those. And we're not just because we become a believer going to experience this dramatic, everything changes Nothing of the old, no struggle, no difficulty, no fight. No, there's going to be tension. We know who wins in the world and in our hearts, but there's going to be that in between. And you can expect, sometimes I hear believers saying, oh yeah, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, which is true. That, uh, you know, there's this battle going on. Yes, that's true. But it's not an equal fight. And don't forget that. The spirit of God within you is stronger than anything you're going to face and will overcome anything that sets itself against you, even sin, even death. So let's not forget that. Kingdom of God, already, not yet. Start small, grows. Secondly, it's not of this world. Now, we've probably heard that before, but what does that mean? Let's look at where Jesus said this and where this phrase comes from. It's Jesus speaking to Pontius Pilate right before his, his, um, his crucifixion. In John chapter 18, verse 36, 
Jesus answered, my kingdom. He's, uh, Pilate has asked him, are you a king? Because that was the charge. It was a charge of sedition and treason, setting himself up as a king in opposition to Caesar. So he's asked, are you a king? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders but my kingdom is not of this world. Just as an aside, especially if you're looking at it in the growth guide, you'll see, he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, we would fight. My kingdom is not of this world. That's called a chiasm, where you start with one idea, move on to a next idea, and then come back to the original idea. You'll see that over and over again in biblical writings, but this is just a small example of that chiasm, C-H-A-S-M. So what is he doing? He's saying the same thing. All right, let's, let's, let's explore this a little bit. He says, "My king, I'm a king, yes, but it's not an earthly kingdom. It's not the same kind. Just like we saw in Daniel's statue, you had all these precious metals and then mixed with the clay at the end to show the weakness inherent in it. But then something totally different, that rock that becomes a mountain. It's it's a totally different in character. It's not the same. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a king, but, but if you were trying to, uh, to, to, to establish a kingdom, what would you do? You would gather an army and you would fight against the Romans. You would, you would, you would establish your power. And he's saying, but this is not the way my kingdom works. I'm a king but it's a different kind of kingdom. And Jesus would try over and over again to drill this home to his disciples. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, but what have I done? I've just washed your feet. I've taken on the role of a servant. You know, kings uh, in this world and earthly kings, they are going to lord it over you. They're going to exert their authority over you, but I am here as one who serves the greatest in the kingdom of God is going, uh, is going to be the one who makes himself the least. Over and over again, he's saying, my kingdom is not like this kingdom, not like the kingdoms that you're used to, not the same values, not the same kind of power. And so here's the, here's the kind of an application to that. Sometimes you can see believers saying, the way that we're going to get God's will accomplished is by fighting. It's by taking on the the ways and the methods and the positions and powers that are this kind of world's kingdom. And that's just probably not going to work. It's a different kind of kingdom. The other thing that this reminds me is and this is a good thing that's kind of a safeguard. Any utopian or theocratic schemes are destined to fail because you are not going to establish the kingdom of God using kingdom of this world kinds of approaches. Yes, Jesus is ruling and reigning. He transforms us from the inside out. He makes those who want to be great to become the servant of all. That's why I'm going to encourage you to embrace kingdom of God values because it's so easy. We live in this world. We're constantly exposed in and work on television, in politics, and even family dynamics sometimes. A power 
dynamic of this world. And Jesus embraces and his followers embrace a servant dynamic. One day the Pharisees, this is in John chapter 17, asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? This is another aspect of this not being a earthly kingdom. And Jesus answered like this, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. Well, what does he mean by that? He goes on to explain, you won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. What's he saying there? Their idea of the kingdom was, okay, we're going to gather an army. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to push them beyond our borders. And then there'll be a little sign now entering the kingdom of God. And, you know, we'll, we'll rule and reign and all the good people will be in charge and all the bad people will be kicked out. And there'll be a line that will draw on maps saying kingdom of God, all the other people. You say, that's not how it works. This is a totally different kind of kingdom. This, again, goes back into the utopian and theocratic schemes. This is not the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is already among you. How is the kingdom of God already among them? In the person of the king, Jesus himself. He's saying, look, what you're looking for, you're looking for it in the wrong way and in the wrong places. The kingdom of God is standing right before you if you will embrace him. That's what I believe he is saying. So it's already there, but they didn't perceive it. And as the kingdom is established, we recognize that it is already and not yet. It's small. It starts small and then grows. It's not this world kind of kingdom. And God's kingdom comes wherever Jesus is acknowledged as king. Here's the, this is all throughout the New Testament. It was hard to even pick just one verse that kind of summarizes this, but this is one that you, you might not be as familiar with. This is John 14, 23. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. Who's ruling and reigning in your life? My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Who, who's, who's a part of God's household? Who are citizens in his kingdom? It's the ones who love him and the ones who do what he says. It's where Jesus is king. A little bit earlier in the same chapter, this is a much more familiar verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. Um, lately, I have been watching The Mandalorian, uh, and I really love it. It's one of my favorite Star Wars programs. And I saw somebody tweet the other day, that he said this is the most Baptist, but I would say this is the most Christian, non-Christian show on television. There were baptisms, adoption, family, sacrifice, all these themes are weaved through this. And of course, their saying is, this is the way. 
This is the way. What was Christianity called at the beginning before it was Christianity? It was the way. And if it wasn't so geeky, I would be always saying, this is the way whenever we're talking about faith, because this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. My way is the kingdom of God. My way, I am the kingdom of God. I am the king. And when you accept me as king, you become citizens in the kingdom and And you are accepting my way of doing the kingdom. And all too often, it's possible for someone to say, I'm a believer. I'm following Jesus who is the way, but I'm not going to do things Jesus way. And we destroy our credibility and we work against the kingdom of God. So, it's already and not yet. I also um, threw this in because we looked at this before when we went through Second Peter, but I thought this was helpful. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. What the apostle Peter is dealing with, he's saying, well, I thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, and here we are. We're still waiting. You know, it's not come in its fullness yet. So why? Why, why, why is this overlap? It, why does it exist? Why, why is he delaying? I remember there was a time when I used to think, oh, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I want to I live. I wanna, there are things I want to do. There are experiences that I want to have. And then as I got older and I think about all the brokenness in the world and all the evil that has happened in just the last hour while we've been sitting around here, wars, murders perhaps, and beyond. And I, it got me to thinking about, you know what? Anytime Jesus wants to come back, that'd be fine with me, right? I mean, all of that would come to an end in that moment. But why does he delay? Why does he wait? And the answer is in this verse. It's mind-blowing. Why, is, why does it seem like he's slow? Why does it seem like he's delaying? Why has he waited thousands of years to make everything right? He's not being slow. He's being patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Because, you see, when that final line is drawn, remember what I said? That's when the kingdom of God is established all those who have bowed the knee to Christ will live forever in that perfect kingdom. But there's also a flip side to that. Those who have rejected Christ are lost to the kingdom forever. And so somehow in God's figuring, in God's equation, he knows that it's better. There's, there's some point it's better to wait until that point because it gives more and more people an opportunity to repent because he's not willing, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What are we doing with the time we've been given? If you're not following Jesus, what are you waiting for? We don't know when that line is going to be drawn, and when that line is drawn, it is too late. And as believers, we've been commissioned given the mission to include others in the kingdom of God, to tell our story, to tell the story of Jesus and invite others to accept him 
as their Savior and Lord? What are we doing with that time that he has provided? We've been talking about God's kingdom. Here is the key that we understand that before the resurrection, we would not have understood. The kingdom is both already and not yet. It starts small and it grows. You can have the confidence that if you've said yes to Jesus, the kingdom of God, his power is growing day by day in you. He is conforming you to his image. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so we're not going to use the ways of this world to accomplish God's purposes. That's not the way it works. And where God's kingdom comes wherever Jesus is acknowledged as king. So we should say yes. Embrace kingdom of God values. Let me give you a real practical step, and you'll see it in your growth guide. How are you going to know his ways? You have to learn his ways. You have to be discipled in his ways. So how much time are you spending in God's word? I gave you two links in the growth guide. One that explains what life journaling is. What is life journaling? It's basically a process for reading and responding to God's word. Follow that first link. It'll unpack it for you. It'll explain it for you so you know what it is and how to do it. And then the second is a group that you can join that says, hey, I'm going to start this. I'm going to do this. I need encouragement. I need to be resourced. I want somebody else to know I'm in. How can you help me join that group? And we'll do what we can to help you. Because as you expose yourself to God's word, as his values seep in and are seeping out in the way that you live, God's kingdom is come. And that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will be coming true in you. Let's pray. Lord, I know that as a good heavenly father, as a loving selfless king, you want your people to thrive. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your ways, to walk in your ways, to, re to identify and reject the ways of this world, even when they put on Christian disguise. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that accurately represent you to our world. I thank you, Lord, that in your grace and kindness, you have offered salvation to us, invited us to be citizens in your kingdom, allowed a little bit of heaven to be pulled back into the here and now. And may our church, your churches in our world, be accurate representations of the kingdom of God. And may you show us, would you show us what our part in that is. Help us to understand it clearly and to apply it wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen.